Good. Just, I mean, this is nothing I've written down. Uh, isn't that KV Kids stuff so exciting? I absolutely love that. Firstly, what KV Kids are getting up to here, just what a joy. But secondly, this mainly ministries thing is so exciting. I just think, wow, uh, there's, there's so much fun stuff that is starting up. The Lord's just doing fun things here and there, and it, oh, I'm excited. Um, but to, to our content this morning, um, we are taking a break as has been said, from our study through Luke's gospel to mark the day of Pentecost this morning. Uh, What the Pentecost is, why the church celebrates it, and what it means for our relationship with God practically. It's not really a break from Luke, though, because the book of Acts is the uh, impressively done sequel. Actually, some sequels flop, but Luke and Acts, what a combo. Um, We've not looked much at Pentecost specifically in recent years in Kingdom Vineyard, not because we don't value Pentecost and what it signifies, but kind of because we celebrate it every week. But true as that is, I kind of, I wanted us to have an undiluted focus on it this year. So, new venue, a focus on Pentecost, come Holy Spirit, and maybe we can get some tongues of fire amongst this lovely new paintwork. My plan is to look at Pentecost in three parts this morning. One is to take a look at the promise of Pentecost. That is, how God had promised a new and wonderful way of living throughout history leading up to it. So the promise of Pentecost. Secondly, then, the day of Pentecost itself, what happened. And thirdly, God's presence with us from Pentecost. So what's changed because God gave the gift of Pentecost and what that means for our relationship with him today. So, part one, the promise of Pentecost. Throughout the Old Testament, God had been promising his people a savior, a Messiah, who would come and heal their relationship with him. Great, and he sent Jesus. God had also been promising a new gift of a new way of relating to him, no longer having to learn about God to get to know him, but that each of God's people all together could know God intimately, closely, themselves. It's the difference between knowing about and knowing. Do you know what? English isn't quite as good at this as some of the other languages are, but you know, in the French you get savoir and connaître, the idea of knowing a fact and, and knowing a person. God was talking about that change throughout Scripture. You don't just need to know about me, or you won't just have to know about me, but I want you to know me. It's a huge shift of relationship. He'd also been promising that his power and his wonders that he'd performed through certain key individuals in the Old Testament, like the prophets or Elijah, that power was going to be poured out on everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, whatever class or status a person had. And this promise also included like a marker, a seal, to show that we're God's people and that he is our God. So these lovely promises had been wonderful new ways of living with him drip-fed to us throughout the Old Testament. And at Pentecost, God then sent his Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the headline. I'm going to take a tiny look, a wee sampling through a couple of Old Testament passages. I had about 15, and uh, Hannah and Rachel in the office both this week gave me loving feedback of shh. And so you've got the really cut-down version. Uh, Here are, though, just a couple of these signposts in the Old Testament, um, and I won't hit you with too many. The prophet Jeremiah, in his book of the Bible, chapter 31, verses 33 to 34, 
And here we go, thank you so much. Jeremiah said, this is the covenant, the relationship, I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. I'll remember their sins no more. So if we go back to verse 33, the promise is that instead of having to learn God's law, that is how to live well, how to live in good relationship with God and one another, God promises to put my law on their minds, to write it in their hearts. That's a huge gift. We can sometimes think of the law in negative things, like, oh, Christians, they're all about that do and don't business. What if God said, no, actually, that is a good way to live with me and with each other. And if you get into that groove, if you live right with me and with each other, that's going to go well. If that's what the law is, well, to have the law as a gift, to have it written down as a gift, to have it placed within us, that's humongous. It's the difference between, oh, I could do this thing now, but I think there was a rule that I shouldn't. And thinking of doing something and having God within us go, mm-mm, nope, stop. Here's a nudge, here's a little check to say, think again, this might not be a good thing. Also in verse 33, that promise that we will be his and he ours, that closeness of relationship. I will be their God and they'll be my people. And verse 34, no longer will people teach each other, this is what you need to do to know God because we will all know him. So picture yourself as an Old Testament member of God's people, a pre-Jesus Christian, you know what I mean, one of God's people before Jesus. And yes, the, the temple or the tabernacle, great, but presence of God amongst us is good, but it's kind of over there. You know, and the priests get to go in on your behalf, great, so our people is represented, wow, thank you God, but you know, it's, he's over there-ish. Maybe if I strictly learn and follow enough rules, then my standing with him will be good, okay? But God coming to know us after Pentecost, coming to know his people, it must have, been, must have been a bit like someone meeting the Holy Spirit for the first time today. Going from glimpses of God, like, yeah, he's good, but I don't really get it, to, whoa, there you are. That's who you are. Man, I love you, Lord. Okay, one, one other Old Testament snippet. Ezekiel, chapter 36. God says so clearly in verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will put my spirit in you. I reckon that these people studying the scriptures before Jesus had some idea what this meant. You know, maybe it was God giving us a new gift to help our thinking and feeling. But the reality was so much better than they knew. God wasn't promising to kind of upgrade humanity, give us a tweak, please restart to update. This was a, a move in. This was a, I'm going to be in your very being, not just tweak you slightly, improve you. And that Ezekiel 37, the following chapter, God shows Ezekiel a famous picture of a valley of dead, dry bones and then God's spirit breathes on them 
And these dry bones in this image, they form tissue and they come back to life. And God explains to Ezekiel what this picture means. He says, then God said to me, mortal, these bones that you've just seen brought back to life, these are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, God said to Ezekiel, prophesy and say to these bones, thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Then I will bring you back to the the land of Israel and you shall know that I'm the Lord. And when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Great, we'll leave it there. So this promise of God putting his spirit within his people. This and a whole boatload of other moments in the Old Testament that I originally wrote, and because I'd have been here 45 minutes, was told to cut out. These show God promising us the gift of his people, receiving him so closely, so intimately, guiding us, giving us the ability to know him, having God within us, not just with us, but within us, now would be an excellent time to stop and take a look at who the Holy Spirit is. Not what the Holy Spirit is, but who the Holy Spirit is. But of course, that is a preach or several preaches in itself. But handily, we have one of those. If I can direct you later on today for some casual listening to the Kingdom Vineyard website, October 2019, we had a sermon series called Come Holy Spirit. And the second one of those uh, by Jesse, wherever he is, Jesse preached um, who the Holy Spirit is. Honestly, it's dead good. Actually, in the first longer draft of this, I quoted about 400 words verbatim from what, and that took me ages to type out as well, and still I cut it. But it's so good. It's a really helpful guide to who the Holy Spirit is, so I commend that to you. October 2019, Jesse Dooley, the Come Holy Spirit series, Who is the Holy Spirit? All I will say about who the Holy Spirit is this morning, just enough to get us um, going, is God giving us the Holy Spirit is not God the Father giving us a tool or a toy from him. We can sometimes think in these ways, but it's not God the Father equipping us. It's God giving us himself within our hearts and minds and very being. So not just an equipping here, hold this, but a change in relationship. It's an empowering from an impresencing, if you will. Ooh, that's not even in my notes, but I like that. It's an empowering from an impresencing, Jim Cronin, 2023. And his presence, of course, brings that power. Okay, part one, that was the lead up. And you know what? I didn't even get to tell you all the other notes I wrote about Shavuot, the the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost in the Old Testament. Oh, do you know what? Dead, stop, okay. The one-sentence version. It started off as a harvest festival, the summer harvest. This was when people would bring things in and say, wow, God has provided grain for us, fantastic. And then through the years, that harvest was celebrated. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given to us in Pentecost, the 50 days after the first one in Passover. Thank you, Lord, for that. And then, over years and in the intertestamental period, that's easy to say, people started to, to... Thank God for the covenants that he'd given as well. So Moses bringing us the law down. Wow, this is great. Pentecost kind of developed as a festival from thank you for what you've given us in the harvest to thank you that you've given us the law as well. Okay, I'll stop. That was two sentences. (laughs) Uh, I'm 
semi-well behaved. Okay, <laughs> the history of Pentecost and those things, right? Part two, the day of Pentecost. The what happened when God fulfilled that promise. If you have a Bible or Bible device with you, would you turn to Acts chapter two? That would be very kind. It'll also appear on the screen if you don't, so don't worry about that. And um, I'm going to ask Wifey to come and read this for me in just a moment. But hang on, take a seat for a minute. I'll set the scene first. Okay. Jesus had been executed on the cross. He'd risen from the dead during the Jewish festival of Passover. And then, having risen from the dead, he spent 40 days talking to his followers about the kingdom of God. Just before he then ascended into heaven, this is all in Acts chapter 1, if you want the, the recap later, he told his followers to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the gift, thank you, wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so, they waited on God. They were joining constantly in prayer, verse 14 of chapter 1 tells us. And 10 days later, 50 days after the Passover, Pente, 50 in Greek, there were 120 of Jesus' followers all together, and then. <laughs> Seems you did no work earlier. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, 
blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then down to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Yeah, I, I put the slides in and I got the verses wrong. Sorry about that. 32 to 33 was right. So Jesus' disciples, all sitting together in a house in Jerusalem, maybe even in the midst of an ongoing prayer meeting, experienced a sound like a violent wind blowing and filling the house. There's loads of symbolism in that. God's spirit has been compared to wind and breath throughout the Bible, including what Jesus taught in the Gospels. And in fact, the very Hebrew and Greek words, ruach and pneuma, that mean spirit also mean wind or breath. So a sound like a rushing wind is a big clue to what's going on. Ah, this is God's spirit. This is what Jesus promised 10 days ago. And the huge power of it, I mean, that looks like a symbol of the huge power of God coming. And as well as hearing this huge, violent, rushing wind sound, they saw in verse three, something that Luke says was like tongues of fire. So these fire-like tongue shapes come into the room and then separate towards each of them and rest on each of them. Just imagine that actually happening amongst us for a moment. Amazing? Terrifying. Yeah. Probably a bit of both, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, with the fire exits are, yeah. But God at work? Definitely. And then in verse 4, any questions that we might have reading this uh, about what that sound and that sight might mean are made very clear. It's the Holy Spirit being poured out among them. A huge flamey whoosh, and the ancient promise is fulfilled. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in the speech that Peter gave that I stopped our passage short for this morning, but um, if you've got Acts 2 in front of you, it's verses 38 and 39. Peter stood up and gave a speech, and he said, repent and be baptized, all of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That includes us for all whom the Lord our God will call. So the gift of the Holy Spirit started with Jesus' disciples and continues to be given to anyone who becomes Jesus' disciple. From Pentecost onwards, 
God the Holy Spirit will dwell in his people. That was what Jesus' disciples experienced. But God didn't just pour out his presence for the people who already knew him and stop with them. There was this miracle of languages, sometimes called tongues. Tongues, language is the same word in Greek. So what were the crowds in Jerusalem seeing and hearing? The festival goers, what was their experience of Pentecost? If we can have Acts 2, 5 to 7 back on the screen, that would be fantastic. These festival goers, brilliant, thank you, were witnessing, or maybe the next one. Thank you. They were witnessing something supernatural. The followers of Jesus were speaking languages that they just didn't know in their natural abilities. Verses 5 to 7 told us that Jerusalem was full of people who lived for God from all over the world, and he wanted them to know that God had done amazing things too, and then to have the opportunity to receive his spirit and to take it away with them, even take him away with them, even if there was a language barrier. God could sort that easy. Actually, I had a little bit of a Google, and um, I think if uh, Morag, who I'm making work very hard on visuals this morning, thank you. This was the least offensive map I could find on Google. This kind of represents as far as the different places people have come from, the names that I sprung up on Rachel when I gave her no notice that she was going to read this, people visiting Jerusalem had come from well, flipping all over the place, a huge distance, from Rome in the northwest, got Cyrene, Libya, and Egypt in the southwest, right the way through, if you saw a map of where Parthia and Media and those places were, we're talking kind of modern-day Iran in the east. This is a, a fair stretch of the world. And verses 9 to 11, to make sure we don't miss how impressive this miracle was, list all those regions for us. So uh, that's a handy underliner of, that was quite impressive, actually, guys. Rachel and I spent some fantastic weeks in Spain on our sabbatical last autumn, and I was useless. Um, I sort of followed her around, nodding, and uh, especially nodding and trying to make friends with the waiters, and sort of saying, si, dos, every time she ordered something, which actually I recommend as a strategy. <laughs> but just occasionally, after a few weeks there, I had built up just a, a scrap of Spanish, just enough to kind of get by if she'd gone to the loo and a waiter came by and I was nervous and needed more nachos or something. My scraps of Spanish that I had, had built up, I was so proud of these. Some would say smug, I wouldn't. Um, I was so proud of the amount of Spanish I'd built up and just occasionally I went to the shops and braved my little bit of Spanish. Hard fought after weeks of scrabbling about and trying to understand give me an extra slice of respect for these disciples suddenly, with a flamey whoosh, being able to just crack out a whole gospel presentation, a whole, yeah, I can talk theology, let's talk about the Old Testament. By the way, the Messiah's come, his name was Jesus, in, what, languages from 11, 13, however many places across a huge chunk of the world. We're not just talking about Jim's attempts via Duolingo. This is pretty awesome. Imagine watching it. And if you didn't understand these other languages, if you saw one person speaking the language you knew and what looked to you to be babbling, you might have gone, have they had a bit too much to drink? 9 a.m., are they still going from the night before? But no, there's enough other people going, hold on a second, pal, in Parthian. That there was this def you get it, right? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. 
Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? This means God's doing something. This means miracle. And the idea of explaining that God has sent his Messiah in the native language of worldwide groups of visitors, yeah, let's not overlook how impressive this moment was. So then Peter gets up and explains it. Verses 14 to 16, fellow Jews and people of Jerusalem, I I can tell you what's going on. Don't miss or dismiss this. What you're witnessing is the prophecy of the book of Joel being fulfilled. In the last days, verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they'll prophesy. Peter's quoting from the book of Joel, the day of the Lord prophecy, one of the prophetic promises I didn't mention earlier, but I still managed to sneak in. It's right, Peter did. Peter and the disciples, having been told by Jesus that this was coming, recognize that this is the moment that fulfills God's promise that he will pour out his Holy Spirit. And Peter points to God's promise through Joel that all of God's people would be filled. That is, that God's people would be speaking supernaturally given truths to one another in prophecy. That God would speak to the young and the old in dreams and visions. He would give his presence and supernatural power to men and gasp, even women. Even servants and slaves. God's spirit is not just for the educated upper class, the people who've passed the test. Not just for the powerful, the people with control. God will move into anyone who is one of his people or wants to become one of his people. And God will give his supernatural power to bring them, to bring the kingdom of God into them where they are. And just in case this isn't obvious, my friends, this means us too. Just in case, sat amongst this church family this morning, there is anyone who has disqualified ourselves and think, yeah, but God wouldn't, wouldn't do that for me wouldn't do that in me. He'd never speak to me prophetically or through me prophetically either. He'd never give me dreams and visions. Guess what? God's gift of himself really is for everyone. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're qualified. And if you're not yet, you can be, and he's got great gifts waiting for you. sort of moving into part three and what it means for us. God's presence with us from Pentecost. God in us is a joy. To have God within us is a delight to experience. His love and his comforting. His life meeting our dry bones and restoring life and hope as the Ezekiel prophecy had. But there's more. God is working through us to bring in his kingdom around us, introducing people to him, demonstrating who God is and what God is like. The festival goers in Jerusalem saw a supernatural sign that God was moving in these people. And what did they hear? Verse 14, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. God's spirit was using the opportunity speaking through his people to say, hey, everyone else, I want you to know this as well. God's people miraculously telling crowds that God is good, that God's at work, their Messiah has come, and also that he's lovely, which is what Jesus told them 
would, it would be like when the Holy Spirit was given. Back in Acts chapter one, just before he ascended, Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. They kind of go together. I'm gonna fill you with me and I have so much love and there'll be so much of my power that the people around you just won't be able to help but notice and you won't be able to help but say, yeah, can I tell you something? Can I show you what God's been doing? Filled with his presence, given God's power, his people will find ourselves not just knowing God for ourselves, but sharing him with other people, what we've witnessed him doing. There's a whole list more of other things that the Holy Spirit does in us and through us. And if you want, I recommend going and reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 later on. Bit of homework, um, but it's good. And also, there's a sermon series on our website. Did I mention that? October 2019. But to finish off this morning, I want to ask, what do you want God to do in you and for you as we look at Pentecost this morning? What do you long for as we look at how God lovingly planned to move into us? For example, I'll start with me. I would love for God to give me, and us as a church, more of a hunger for his presence. I mean, I, I, I want God's presence in my life, but do you know what? I want to want God's presence in my life more than I do. I want that to be more of a, come on then, Lord. I want to be even more up for it. And I'd love to see him pour out healings. Pour, I'd love to see signs of him lovingly at work, bringing restoration and frankly, I want that for the church, but I'd love it to start with me. And I would love to see my friends and my neighbors and my family members who don't know Jesus meet the God who is loving and powerful and present. And if he happened to do it through me as well, I'd be overjoyed. So, what would you love to see? If God was up for it, what would you ask him to do this morning? There might be some of us who would like to know how to live with God better. That putting the law on our hearts that I talked about earlier on. Maybe the strength to choose him in every moment. There may be some of us who just want to know him better for ourselves. That intimacy of being his and knowing that he's yours. To know that seal on your life of, yeah, God's Holy Spirit is in me. I, I am his. Maybe it's for the gifts that God's Holy Spirit gives us. From hearing from him in prophetic words and pictures to speaking the languages of other people or even angels to, I don't know, multiplying loaves and fishes. Fancy that one, that'd be good. Or maybe this morning you just feel like a valley of dry bones. You just feel flat and the idea of him breathing life and hope into you is, I don't know, these are examples. What do you yearn for? As we were reading the passage, is there something that you think, oh Lord, I'd love it if you would. I think I'd like to make that yearning our prayer this morning. We're talking about the same loving and giving God with the same promise for his people. So let's invite him to come and do stuff, shall we? Great. If you're able, would you stand? And we're going to pray. And I'll try and walk behind the speaker so I don't set it off. Great.
Um, rather than going straight into ministry time, although, yes, please, band, do come up, I would love to just have a few moments of silence and see what the Lord wants to do. This is space for you to meet with God yourself, to receive from him. If you're comfortable, um, you might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. Some people hold their arms out in front of them. It's kind of a posture of putting your body in a receiving place. Again, if it helps, great. You don't have to. But I'd just love to give you a moment or two with the Lord, and, um, and we'll just see if he's up to up for doing anything in particular. Lord, we love what you have done. We love that you poured out your presence at Pentecost. And that you continue to move into your children's life when we come to know you. But we leak, Lord. So would you come and refresh us, refill us again? And Lord, you know the yearnings of each heart in the room. You know what things we are asking you for. Would you come and bring blessing? The good things from you, I mean. Would you come and bring yourself? Yourself. 